I greet each of you this morning in the name of Jesus. The message that I have to share with you this morning is one that was assigned to me. And it was one that was assigned for a group of church leaders. So this message was designed for preachers. And I'm going to share it with you. The title of the message is Serving with the Mind of Christ. Serving with the Mind of Christ. Now, I'm not going to tell you everything I told the preachers, and I'm going to tell you a few things I didn't tell the preachers. But I believe that if you are a believer this morning, then you are in some way or another a minister of the gospel. Is that okay to say? At least a servant of the gospel. And so the the principles in this message and the passage that this message is taken from is for all of us who have named the name of Christ. The purpose of the message is to challenge the believer to be transformed more and more into the image of God and to live a life of dedicated service to Him. The primary passage that we're going to be looking at is Philippians chapter 2. But before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about greatness. I think, to some degree or another, all of us want to be great. And in the eyes of the world we live in, the ones who are considered the greatest are the ones who have accumulated the most wealth, they've achieved the highest positions of authority, and they've accomplished the greatest uh, the greatest feats, you know, the athletes and, and, the, and the successful businessmen and, and, and maybe even politicians, people like that. They're the ones that are considered as great in our world. But when Jesus came to this earth and he walked in this earth, he took that idea that society considered to be great, he took it and just turned it on its head. And Jesus said, those who are weak will be strong. The poor will be rich, and the rich will be poor. The hungry will be full, and the full will be empty. The humble will be exalted. And the one who serves will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A.W. Tozer stated it well when he said this, the Christian soon learns that if he would be victorious as a son of heaven among men on earth, he must not follow the common pattern of mankind, but rather the contrary. That he may be safe, he puts himself in jeopardy. He loses his life to save it and is in danger of losing it if he attempts to preserve it. He goes down to get up. If he refuses to go down, he is already down, but when he starts down, he is on his way up. He is strongest when he is weakest, and weakest when he is strong. Though poor, he has the power to make others rich. But when he becomes rich, his ability to enrich others vanishes. He has the most after he has given most away, and has least when he possesses most. He may be and often is highest when he feels lowest, and most sinless when he is most conscious of sin. He is wisest when he knows that he knows not. 
and knows least when he has acquired the greatest amount of knowledge. He sometimes does most by doing nothing and goes farthest when standing still. That's a little picture of what Jesus taught is great in the kingdom of God. Now turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you haven't already. The book of Philippians was written by Paul. He wrote it, we believe, from prison. And in chapter 1 of Philippians, he makes it very clear that he is in prison and God is using him in prison. And if God can use him in prison, then prison is where he should be. And he, he talks about some good things that are happening because he is in prison. And then, this is chapter 1, verse 27, he challenges the believers. He says this to the believers. He says, so he's been talking about himself, and then he says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And I'm just going to read that little line out of the NIV. It says this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So wherever you're at, conduct yourself in a way that is, it points people to Jesus. It's, it's worthy of the, the gospel that you received. So let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs or the way you're conducting your life, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And, and that's what it's about as a body of believers. In our life, we're conducting our life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as a body, we're standing fast. We're in one spirit. We're with one mind, striving together, pouring all our energies into the faith of the gospel. Even if it means being in prison, as Paul was. That's what he's writing about. For us, it's probably not going to mean that, but... It may mean giving up some of our rights, some of our privileges, some of our opinions. It may mean suffering. But whatever it means, we're striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the ideal that we should be striving for. So how do we attain this high ideal? Let's go to chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 4 to begin. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Now, I'm just going to stop there briefly, make a few comments. Again, that verse in the King James is, is maybe a little difficult to understand, but basically what it's saying is, if God has done anything for you, if, if he's... If he's comforted you, if, if you have fellowship together through the Spirit, if, if, if he's extended mercy to you, and as believers he has, if he's done that, we should have a response. There should be a response from us. And before I read verses 2 through 4, I want to just ask you, follow along as I read and dream with me a little this is these verses are saying if, if God has done anything for us as a body of believers this is how we should conduct our life 
This is what church should look like. So let's, let's read these verses and just dream a little. Could it be this way? Verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, nothing, nothing at all, done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each, every one of you, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that the way church is supposed to function? We are like-minded. We, are, we have the same love. We have the same mind. We're not doing things out of strife. We're not doing things to exalt ourselves. I'm not looking out for my own needs. I'm looking out for your needs. You're not looking out for your needs. You're looking out for my needs. All of us are esteeming each other better than themselves. Imagine the light that our little city on a hill would produce if that would be our congregation here at Pike or wherever we're at. Imagine the light that this city would produce. In fact, if you jump down a few verses, uh, verse 14 and 15, Paul says this, Do all things without murmurings or disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, and that's our nation is crooked and perverse, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So we're in this crooked, perverse nation, but we are a light. And so let's, let's live as lights. Let's live without murmurings. Let's live without disputings. Let's live the way Paul outlined in verses 2 through 4, and we will be a brilliant light. And I would just suggest to you, and I know this is idealistic and probably unrealistic, but again, just, just dream a little bit. I believe if this is truly what we were, that our churches would continue to divide and split, but not because we couldn't get along, but because our buildings would be full. And people would look at us and say, whatever it is they have, that's what I want. I want to be a part of that. It's beautiful. And I just think how God must long for his church to function like this and how he must grieve when it doesn't. Now, I don't say any of that to say you're not living that way. I don't know how you are here at Pike. I just know how we are as humanity in general. And when I read those verses, I just have to see the, the, the heart of God in those verses and what he wants in his church. Now, there's a recurring word in these verses that I want to look at a little bit, and it's the word mind. It comes up first in chapter 1, verse 27, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, that ye be like-minded, being of one accord, of one mind. And then verse 3, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, 
what mind is Paul talking about when he says this, that we're with one mind? What mind is he talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if we are going to serve with the mind of Christ, we first need to change our mind. If we are going to be a unified body of believers, we need to change our mind. We must have the mind of Christ. Now, can someone here tell me what the word repentance means? Jeff mentioned repentance. What does repentance mean? Yes, that's correct. Um, I forget. I forget what if I looked up in Vines or somewhere else, but it literally it basically means to think differently or to change your mind. Is basically what repentance means. And 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 Tim is right. We're going this way. We're walking after the desires of our flesh. We're following the ways of the world, and we see that it's wrong. We think like the world. We conduct our life like the world, but we know that's not right. We see that that's not right, and we turn around, and we go this way. We change our mind. We're now following Christ. We're looking to Christ. We're getting our cues from Him. He is our Lord. We've changed our mind. We've repented. We're now following Christ. And so if we want the mind of Christ, we must repent. Now, you know the passage in Romans 12. It's very familiar. The Romans 12 speaks of transformation and it says this, I beseech you or I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, here again, because of what God has done for you, because of what God's done for you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Don't be going this way, following the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Repent. Change your mind. Be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. There it is again. Be transformed by changing your mind. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so this this work of transformation is a work in which I die. Myself, I die. And I'm raised to newness of life by Christ, by the power of God. And I become a new creature. That's transformation. And when that happens, we think different. We now have the mind of Christ. <clears throat> so that's kind of the foundation for serving with the mind of Christ. So what is the mind of Christ? I want to go now to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where we have a glimpse into the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now that's right there, lays out the mind of Christ. And and how is God going to view, how is God going to uh, reward Christ for 
for what he did here. Verse 9, Wherefore, because of this, in light of this, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is the mind of Christ as laid out in this passage? We first of all need to establish where Christ started. He started out at the very highest position possible. Equality with God. That's where he was. That's who he was. He was a part of the Godhead. And then he starts downward. And he wasn't forced downward but he voluntarily started downward. And notice the uh, six steps downward that Jesus took. Number one, he made himself of no reputation. Now that's saying something for someone who's equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. Number two, he took upon him the form of a servant. Number three, he was made in the likeness of men. Number four, he humbled himself. Notice this progression, just continuing to step down. He humbled himself. Number five, he became obedient unto unto death. And we could stop there, and that would be low enough, but Jesus didn't stop there. Even the death of the cross, the lowest form of death, the death of a criminal. But he continued to step down from the highest place down to the lowest place, a criminal's death on a cross. And Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now you may say, well, I'll never be equal with God and I'll never die on a cross. And and that may be right. But yet the principle here is the same for all of us as believers. It's not, not exalting ourselves. It's not seeking for position, not seeking for honor, but rather taking the place of a servant, humbling ourselves, serving with an attitude of Christ-like humility, living in obedience to all that our Master, our Lord has asked of us. And yes, taking up our cross. Taking up our cross, self on the cross, and following Christ. And then we have the beautiful picture of Jesus. After he had done this, after he accomplished this, God exalted him. God raised him from the lowest position possible now to the greatest position possible. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the mind of Christ. And that's the will of God for each of us, that we would take 
the low road, if you want to call it that. Humble ourselves, be a servant, take up our cross, and if we will, God will exalt us. He has promised that. And we can look at we can look at the promises of that in, in Scripture, and we're not going to focus on that this morning, but we do have the promise that as we do that, we will be exalted. So now, how can we apply the mind of Christ to our own life? I want to first off consider three things, and you could probably come up with three more. But looking at the life of Christ, looking at his example, what do we see and how does it apply to our life? And and I'm going to share these with you and I'm going to share some scripture. I'm not going to elaborate on them a lot. I will allow you and the spirit to work it out in your own life. But, But number one, how do we apply the mind of Christ to our own life? The mind of Christ was not focused on his own desires, but rather on the will of his father. The mind of Christ was focused not on his own desires, but rather on the will of his Father. In the book of John, there are seven chapters in a row where Jesus speaks of doing his Father's will. I'm just going to read these quickly. John 4, 34 is the first one. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Chapter 5, he said, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Chapter 6, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Chapter 7, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Chapter 8, I do always those things that please him. Chapter 9, I must work the works of him that sent me. In chapter 10, I and my Father are one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was in anguish, when his flesh was rising up and saying, no, I don't want to go through with this, he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Because the mind of Christ was not focused on his own desires, but rather on the will of his Father. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Number two, the mind of Christ was not focused on his own well-being, but rather on the well-being of sinful and depraved humanity. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said this, He said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 53, Jesus said this. This was, uh, I believe it was when he was before Pilate or maybe it was on the cross. I kind of forget what where he was at when he said this, but he said this, do you not? Do you think that I cannot now pray to the Father and he will provide, it was in the garden, I believe, when, when they, they came to get him and Judas betrayed him. He said this, or do you think that I cannot now pray to the Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? I could do that. But then he said, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it, should ha- that it must happen thus? So I could do this. 
I could save myself, but God's will wouldn't be done. There wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice for mankind. So the mind of Christ was not focused on his own well-being, but rather on the well-being of sinful and depraved humanity. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Number three, the mind of Christ did not seek for self-preservation, but rather that the kingdom of God could be advanced. In John 18, this was when Jesus was before Pilate, he said this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus told his followers, he said, Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? John 12, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I into this came I unto this hour, Father, glorify thy name. The mind of Christ did not seek for self-preservation, but rather that the kingdom of God could be advanced. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And again, you could probably come up with more. I'm going to stop at that. The point I want you to understand is that when Jesus was here on earth, his focus was not on himself. It was not on himself. It was on the kingdom of God. So what about his comfort? So what about his success? So what about his ego? So what about his legacy? He was here to do the will of his father and to finish the work that he was called to do. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want to very quickly, we could look at this passage and say, yes, but, but he was God, and he knew the future, and all this stuff, and, and we could try to explain it away, and don't do that, but we could do that. But Paul didn't just give us the example of Christ in Philippians 2. He also gave us the example of two other men, just normal men. One was a young man, Another one, I'm not sure who he was exactly as far as his age and stuff like that. But that is Timothy and Epaphroditus. If you look at chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, Paul says this, But I trust in the Lord to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that he also may, may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. That's most people, but then Paul says of Timothy, but ye know the proof of him that as a son with, his, with the father, he hath served me in the gospel. So here's a young man who's not focused on his own well-being. It's not focused on himself, but on the kingdom of God, focused on serving the church, young Timothy. Then you jump down to verse 25, and we have the example of Epaphroditus. Paul says this, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, 
my brother and, and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, not unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm just going to jump down to verse 30. Again, still speaking of him, he said, Paul said this, Because of the work of Christ, he was not unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Another example of just a common man who was giving his life literally for the kingdom of God. He cared more about the well-being of the, of the church and the work of the kingdom than about his own health and his own well-being. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ and in Timothy and in Epaphroditus. Now, I want to make this very personal for each of us this morning. I want to ask you a few questions, and I don't want you to answer, but I want you to ponder them in your heart. How committed are you to doing the will of God? How committed are you to building the kingdom of God? Do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe what the Bible says about this life and the next? Now, they're fairly basic questions. And if, if I handed you a paper and, and you were supposed to fill in the answers, and this was a test and, and I was going to grade them, you know what the answer is supposed to be. You, you'd get them right. Because it's just basic questions. But if I were to look at your life, could I see without a doubt that what you're telling me is true? And, and I just have to acknowledge that I, I, I tremble even saying this because I have not attained. If you would evaluate my life, it probably wouldn't match up exactly to some of the answers I would give. But, but ponder it. If I, would, if I were to look at your life, what I know, without you even telling me what your answers are, what I know what they are, I could look at your life and say, yes, he is 100% committed to doing the will of God. His greatest desire in life is to build the kingdom of God. He obviously believes there's life after this one because of the way he lives, because of the way he conducts himself. Because see, if the faith that you profess does not manifest itself in the way you live, then your faith is a facade. If it doesn't, doesn't manifest itself in the way you live, then your faith is a facade. And I feel that way too often, and in my notes I have we, I'll say I. Way too often I live my life in such a way that just in case, if God's not real, and just in case, if I've been deceived, just in case if, if this life is the only life, 
There is no heaven or hell. Just in case that's the case, I've still lived a pretty good life. It's okay. I've lived a good life. But some time ago, I was challenged with this thought. What if I would live my life in such a way that when I die, if God's not real, then I have lived as a fool. That's the way Jesus lived. When you look at the life of Jesus, you have to conclude that to a world looking on, Jesus conducted his life as an absolute fool. He started out at the top, and he voluntarily died a criminal's death. He had everything going for him, and he set it aside to do the will of God. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. As I pondered this message, my mind went to a story, and you've probably heard this story. I don't think I've shared it here, but it's the story of two Moravian boys. And I just want to share it with you. It's, even if it's familiar, it's worth repeating. Two young men, these were Moravian boys in their early 20s, two young men had heard of an island in the West Indies called St. Thomas Island. On this island, they had learned a hardened, atheistic British slave master owned 3,000 African slaves. The man hated religion. No preacher will ever stay on this island, the slave master had declared. If one is ever shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house till he leaves. We will not hear religious nonsense on this island. These two young men had heard about the dreadful situation of the 3,000 slaves who had been brought to that distant Atlantic island. What moved them yet more was the question, will they live and die there without ever hearing of Jesus Christ? After much prayer and counsel, the two young men came to a life-changing decision. They sold themselves to the slave owner, and then, with the money they received, paid their passage to the slave island. Their new owner would not even pay for their voyage. As the ship left the pier, the young men's relatives and fellow believers from Hernhut gathered on the shore in farewell to the two brave brothers. This was not a two-year mission term with a six-week furlough after every term. This was goodbye forever. Their families were weeping on the shore, for they knew they would never see their sons and brothers again in this life. The brothers had sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery to be treated worse than animals for the sake of the gospel. They had laid their all on the altar. As the gap widened between the ship and the shore, the lads stood by the ship's rail. As one of the lads saw the widening gap between the ship and the shoreline, he linked one of his arms through the arm of his fellow and raising his other arm, he shouted across the gap the last words their loved ones ever heard from them. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Do you think they believed what Jesus said about this life and how we are to conduct ourselves and about the next life and what our reward will be?
Yes, they did. Because they gave their all to the kingdom of God. How deep is your commitment? Let this mind be in you. I want to close with a quote from John Wesley. He said this, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me in any place of service. Rank me with any type of people. Put me to work. Put me to suffering. Let me be useful for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and for your use. May that be our desire and our prayer as we seek to serve the kingdom of God with the mind of Christ.